In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. On this week's episode of White Wine Question Time. I was in Westminster last night and, you know, it's just so funny. Um, you know, the number of MPs and, um, you know, commons workers and all the rest of it who, who, would, who would now come up to me and say, oh, I was watching every week and we loved it and blah, blah, you know. So it's very surprising also who watches Strictly. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I know I'm definitely in that sort of camp of who'd have thought, um, A, that he'd have done it and, and, and how much he'd have enjoyed it. Then on the day, he rang me at about six because we were going out for dinner on a sort of a double date. And, and he rang me and said, well, I've never done this before. How do you think this works? I said, well, I've never done it before. So I don't know. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, well, no, I think I better sort of do the safe option and, and, and aim for medicine. And then, of course, ended up in the most unsafe, absurd industry in the world, which is television. Um, <laughs> Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. Although we're parking the wine today due to the fact that my guest has to host the Channel 4 Evening News later today, as he has done for the last 25 years. Born in Liverpool and raised in Lancashire uh, to Indian immigrant parents, he initially intended to follow in the footsteps of his father, a doctor, and was accepted by Oxford University to study medicine. But during his gap year, he stumbled across the opportunity to present the BBC's Open to Question programme and on his first day on set as a teenage interrogator was tasked with interviewing Jimmy Savile and John Prescott. He fell in love with journalism and called up Oxford to switch his degree from medicine to philosophy, politics and economics, much to his parents' dismay. 
In fact, by the time he took his place at Oxford, he'd already secured a job presenting the Asian Current Affairs programme, Eastern Network East on BBC Two, and juggled his studies alongside covering huge stories for them, like the Yugoslav War and the Pakistani elections. In fact, by the time he graduated, he already had bagged a role as a presenter with Newsround. And then at the age of 24, he decided to leave Newsround to head to Newsnight and quickly progressed to becoming a launch presenter on BBC News 24 before leaving to join Channel 4 News. And that was 25 years ago. He was 28 at the time. And well, he's been there ever since. A father to two grown-up children, Jay and Jasmine. He lives with them and his wife Lisa in Richmond in London. And as well as anchoring the evening news, also presents the current affairs series Unreported World as part of his role as foreign affairs ambassador at Channel 4. And his fantastic podcast, Ways to Change the World, where he interviews inspiring men and women on exactly that, ways in which they would change the world, be they Sadiq Khan, Ice Cube, KSI, Tim Peake or Justin Welby. But this year... He swapped his suit for sequins and found himself on the Strictly dance floor where he stayed for eight weeks, giving him an experience which he says has been truly life-changing. I can't wait to hear more about it. Let's dial him in. It's Krishnan Guru Murthy. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Kate. What a very nice introduction. <laughs> what, what an extraordinary life you've lived. Thanks for giving me so many words to play with. Well, that was very nice. It's funny hearing it back. <laughs> Do you realise what a go-getter you are? Um, I don't think of myself as a go-getter, really. I mean, uh, I, you know, I believe in sort of grasping the opportunities you have and always have told people to do that. Um, go-getter? I don't know. Is that, I don't know if that's the right phrase. Um, it certainly I, I, reads that way. <laughs> I think you're being bashful. Hey, how are you adjusting to re-entry back into the orbit of normal life post-glitterball? It was really, really hard, I have mm. to say. I mean, it was... It, Strictly was a surprise from start to finish, and it continues to surprise after you've gone out. Um, I'll be doing the tour in the new year. So you um, love the tour. I hosted yeah, well, the first hosted five it, tours, Krishnan, and yeah. it is a way for people to hold on uh, to the experience before they are... Because nobody's ever ready to let go straight. I mean, look, listen, some people come and hate the experience and it overwhelms them. But others, I, I would watch year in, year out. People just fall into this kind of vacuum of loving the experience of ballroom dancing and Latin American. People you'd never expect, like you. <laughs> yes, like me, exactly. And, um, no, I think that's definitely the way. And um, in fact, I was, at, I was in Westminster last night and, you know, it's sort of so funny, um, you know, the number of MPs and, um, you know, commons <laughs> workers and all the rest of it who, who, would, who would now come up to me and say, oh, I was watching every week and we loved it and blah, blah, you know. Um, so it's very surprising also who watches Strictly. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I know I'm definitely in that sort of camp of who'd have thought... Um, a that he'd have done it, and 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 how much he'd have enjoyed it, and I showed mean, you waxed lyrical about it. And, yeah, but then, a couple of weeks ago we had Dan Walker on the show, and he was exactly the same, and and still holds on to that experience. Says it changed him, it even changed him as a presenter, uh, even right down to the way he walks. He says, yeah, um, I think it does. It changes your posture. It changes the way mm. you hold yourself. You feel taller, um, and it's. It's, it's, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing for me was sort of emotional, actually. I mean, I think, you know, it, and, and that's the biggest challenge coming out because you suddenly feel very wobbly um, and very exposed. And um, 
doing Strictly is really a sort of a process, if you're someone like me, is, is a process of kind of taking off all the armour mm-hmm. um, and all, you know, the normal shell that you use to get through life um, in the sort of the rough old world of news and, um, and, and making yourself, you know, a bit of a kid and very vulnerable and the mm-hmm. pupil and, um, you know, open to learning and open to feeling things. And, and so when it finishes, you suddenly feel like you're sort of out in the middle of, <laughs> out in the middle of the, you know, the, the field, um, sort of exposed with, without your shell. And it's a very odd feeling um, and takes some getting used to. And you also don't want to put the shell back on is the thing. I mean, you know, you, you, you've enjoyed that feeling so much. You've enjoyed the sort of the, the liberation. Yeah. of doing it and and so you don't really want to go back to how things were before you would talk <clears throat> with the same level of importance in the back of a cab in an instagram post about your samba and the selection of music that you'd gone with that week as you would in previous posts about you know here i am reporting from some <laughs> foreign climes your instagram suddenly went from being very heavy news to if you keep spooling through it suddenly the sequins come in and there's yeah. no going back <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i sort of decided to divide my social media as well i kind of i thought twitter can stay news because yeah. it's very much a news platform or x um, and Instagram should be about fun. And so, um, I, I mean, I do put a little bit of news back on Instagram now, but I, I think I'm going to try and keep them slightly separate. There was one post and I thought, wow, you really are straddling two very different worlds here, where you were posting from Taiwan, where you were over there shooting and uh, for a new edition of Unreported World, talking about how uh, the people there are arming themselves, preparing themselves for the potential of, of, of a, a Chinese invasion, right? So this is civilians learning how to operate a machine gun of their own volition. Meanwhile, you're also in the early stages of Strictly. So you're coming back from reporting that to trying to, you know, challenge yourself with a cha-cha. It really was um, <laughs> very bizarre. It was in between the launch show and the first live show. Um, the launch show, as you know, is recorded. And so there are two weeks between that first launch show and then the first live show. So I had you know, I had a, had a few hours with Lauren learning the steps to the first, or just getting, you know, my head around the first steps to the first live dance. And so I would be dancing around my bedroom, um, <laughs> trying to sort of remember these steps and keep them in my head um, so that I'd be vaguely in the right zone for when I came back. But I mean, I had to sort of go to Taiwan, shoot the documentary, miss the first full week of rehearsals. Um, come back just sort of ignore the jet lag and get straight into the second week of rehearsals and go straight into the first show so it was a very odd existence and were you um, whilst you were doing all of this by the way you know channel 4 audience really got behind you as did your team so you also have on your instagram good luck messages from bono and the edge from you too <laughs> via satellite link from las vegas and arnold actual schwarzenegger Krishnan, he's, yeah. he's killed, he's killed, so yeah, he's hold on killed, a second. Yeah. I'm all digging in a hole, digging up my soul now, going down, excavation, I and I, in, in the, the sky. sky. You make me feel like I can fly so high. Elevation. Good luck, Krishnan, and I. Not that we believe in luck. 
Well, it was, it's slightly the perk of doing Channel 4 News that you do get to meet extraordinary people. And so um, I, was, I was invited out to Las Vegas to interview Bono in The Edge, and I couldn't do it because it was in the middle of Strictly. So um, my colleague in Washington went out to do it, and so she told them about, this, about it, and they, they sent me a very nice message. Um, they sent fact, it was, for it was, you. It was for both of us. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah they did. Well, the thing was, we, we had thought at one point that we might do a dance to Elevation. Um, and, and so it was particularly exciting to get them to do that song. And, uh, and, and sadly, it didn't work out that way because in the end, we, we ended up doing a, um, a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. So um, it would have been absolutely incredible had we been dancing to you two that week to also have a message from them. But it didn't quite work out that way. But Very rock and roll, though. You've got the Terminator and, and, and half of you two wishing yeah, you I well. Mean... <laughs> I want to wish good luck to Laura and Christian and their event. I mean, I know they're going to outdo everybody. Oh, you're going to have such a good time on the tour, Krishnan. It's so much fun, that group living, that... Yeah, you just, it's just a lovely extension of the bubble. And you're playing to arenas. There's so much love for that show. When you're doing yeah. two, like on a matinee day, you're exhausted, but that audience carries you. The first year I did it, I was in my first trimester with my son and so sick. But the moment I stepped out on that stage, it all just, it just dissipated. Yeah. And Dr. Theatre kicks in and off you go. And it was, it was, yeah, you're going to love it. Well, I've never done anything to that big an audience. I've done things to sort of, you know, a couple of thousand, but sort of 20,000 or more <laughs> is absolutely extraordinary. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I was talking to Katya about it the other day and she was saying it's, it's like, it's almost like a thank you tour, you know, to the viewers mm. because, you know, they, they, they love the show so much they are coming to see you live and you you get that sort of direct relationship with them um in the you know in, in the arenas and and that that i think is going to be quite special so i'm really looking forward to it oh you're gonna love it you, it's gonna it's gonna elevate your experience and then some i hope um before we dive into the questions that i've devised for you krishnan um, i just wanted to talk to you about your podcast because i i've i've fallen in love with it I didn't know well, it was there. Nice. That's half the problem with podcasting, right, is that there's so much great content out there that when you stumble upon a jewel like yours, it's, it's so exciting because I've got, I've got weeks of listening now. I can just <laughs> stay with you and select a guest for every mood. And what a great premise um, the podcast is, you know, is built around, how people that have experience in certain sectors of life will bring that to the fore to help change the world for, for, the, for the greater good. Um, your idea, Channel Four's idea. It was my idea, actually, and yeah, I, I, um, I kind of wanted to do a different kind of interview to the ones I do on the news. Um, you know, news interviews tend to be a short, be quite confrontational, very focused on, you know, a particular, a particular angle or a particular thing that I'm trying to get to the bottom of. They're not open. You know, no. the way a podcast interview is. And so I wanted to do a different kind of interview where I would say, well, you know, what, what do you care about? What do you believe in? What do you think? And rather than sort of stamping on it or saying, well, that's nonsense, you know, or challenging it. I yeah. go, well, that's interesting. Let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. And so it was, it was a different kind of interview. And I'd originally thought that it would be a way of engaging, engaging with politics and politicians in a different way. But it's not become um, that. But it's not that at all. Um, 
and and actually, you know, we we actually we have very few politicians on there, mm. um, and it's much more about writers, thinkers, musicians, artists. And, you know, people astronauts. who've got, you know, astronauts, activists. Justin Welby, well, great. You know, <laughs> the, the episode that I listened to yesterday that I really enjoyed was um, the actor Eddie Marsden, who's... Yeah, fascinating. extraordinary conversation that was. And what I found is that actually you're flipping your own narrative because with the news, your job is to, like you say, challenge, to look for the problems um, and ask for the answers as to, you know, so what are you going to do about that in 30 seconds? Yeah. Um, because that's the nature of the beast. But with this, actually, you're celebrating people that have already gone out and started to dig into solutions. It's a very different energy and attitude. Yeah. And, and most people do want to make the world a better place. You know, kind of, yeah. I, I, I've always had this sort of underlying belief, even though I cover the most terrible things and the most terrible people, that that, you know, the world and, and, and people are fundamentally good and want to make the world a better place. Um, and, and it's very nice to, to just dig into that and, and say, mm-hmm. let's talk about the good stuff. I mean, you inevitably talk about the bad stuff along the way, but, um, but, but trying to have a positive conversation, I think deliberately trying to have a positive conversation mm-hmm. is really, really good. I think people share so much more. I think the value is, is greater. Because you, like, you, everybody puts their, their guns down, don't they? And just go, okay, yeah, yeah so we collaborate as yeah. a conversation. And, and people go into that conversation knowing that I'm not going to try and duff them up. Yeah. Um, and I mean, politicians <laughs> are still a up. bit wary. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is kind of what they fear normally if, you're, if they yeah. hear the Channel 4 News theme. <laughs> I, I think, you know, normally a politician will go in there thinking, oh, blimey, what's he going to ask? And, you know, and they'll prepare. Mm. Um, and now, you know, in the rare occasions we do do politicians they are a little bit more relaxed because, you know, I think there's sort of an understanding that this is not the forum for that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going with your thoughts here rather than um, coming here to humiliate you. And isn't it lovely to have a forum like a podcast where in a world where everything has to be explained, you know, in 140 characters or 30 seconds, actually conversations can breathe and people come to it because they, they want context, they want consideration, deliberation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, and, and also just the flexibility of sometimes, as you know, you'll, you'll have a conversation, you might aim for your podcast to be 35 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it might be. Sometimes the conversation is so good that you just go, you know, let it run. You know, we've, we've, we've put them out at over an hour um, just because they've been very good. And you kind of think, well, you know, yes, yeah, so, so that might be a bit long for some people and they might do it in two halves or they might give up. But some people are going to love this because it's gripping and we'll just run it. Yeah, it's exciting. I love it. I love the landscape and the potential and the possibilities. Are you ready for your first question? Yeah. I want to talk to you about the merits of being thrown in at the deep end. Because as a teenager, you had a day that proved to be, well, pivotal. It was your first day working as a reporter for the BBC um, on on a show where... Teenagers were tasked with taking on public figures. And on day one, <laughs> talk about chalk and cheese, Krishnan, you had Jimmy Savile, who you say was awful, as history will attest, and the politician John Prescott. I mean, that is quite the day. And it proved to be so seminal for you that you, you decided you were not going to go into to medicine. You were actually going to really pursue media and, and 
quite aggressively. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that day, but also when else you've had a day that's kind of changed the, the path of where you thought you were going? I mean, that was a huge day because when I first started working in television, I was 18, I'd just left school, I'd just done my A-levels, but it was a year out and I was doing it for fun. I, you know, I was still intending to go to medical school because I didn't really believe that a proper career in television was open to me. I'd, I'd mm. got this job, and amazingly, looking back on it, you know, I'd, I'd got this job presenting this series um, in the evening on BBC Two, and yet I still didn't really believe it. And I thought, well, you know, this is kind of just a bit of nonsense I'm going to do for a bit. And then I'm going to go and grow up and be a, be a doctor or be a medical student at the very least. And so it was only when I was sort of there in the moment with this very, very big figure from TV and showbiz. Um, and then a guy who was right in the heart of the news, because that day John Prescott was in the middle of his... Um, election campaign to be deputy leader of the Labour Party the first time when he didn't get elected actually um he lost to Roy Hattersley that time but uh, it was 1988 but he, nonetheless he was right in the middle of the story the political story at that time and so it was absolutely gripping you know because I suddenly thought the access you get to people and to the news and to people's lives and to debate is is just incredible and, and very, very exciting. And, and so who wouldn't want to do this forever? Um, and so, I, yeah, I pretty much immediately thought, you know, I've got to try and do this. And, and so I thought, well, I'm not going to go and do medicine anymore. I'll change my degree. Thought, well, politics, philosophy, economics was the kind of the obvious thing to do if you wanted to be a journalist um, and, and set about doing that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was seminal. But it was seminal maybe because because I was so naive and young and kind of playing at it initially. Um, you know, I grew well, yes up in no, Lancashire. Yes and no, you were actually doing it. You were on BBC Two. It's, you weren't like, it's I, not like I you were was, sat at home with but As with I say, I never thought seriously that this was my career. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had grown up in, 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 in Lancashire at a school that was kind of, it was a really good school, but it was very science focused. It was like, you know, there aren't, you know, the idea of working in the arts or in television or in the media it, was, it never, ever mm. occurred to anyone. You know, all the careers conversations we'd have, you'd never, ever talk about that. Um, th that wasn't an option. You know, there were basically sort of two options for me. I could be a... If I wanted to not be a scientist, I could be a lawyer or an barrister. And, um, and I, I looked at that for a while, and I did some work experience in uh, barrister's chambers in Manchester. And, and funnily enough, the, I had a long talk with a couple of barristers who who told me about how old-fashioned and prejudiced the law was and how I'd probably come up against racism and, um, you know, I might struggle a bit. And, and it kind of put me off. And I thought, oh, that's far too risky. Um, really? I'd better play it safe. And, um, I mean, they were probably being very honest of, of the times. Yeah, I mean, I was quite young, I remember. when that. I mean, I was 15, 16 when that happened. Um, and then so I, I remember thinking, oh, well, no, I think I better sort of do the safe option and, and, and aim for medicine. And then, of course, ended up in the most unsafe, absurd <laughs> industry in the world, which is television. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it must have felt um, like another world, really, in terms of where you were coming from. Because, like you say, you were at school in... You were at a, a, a good school. It was a grammar school um, yeah. in Lancashire. I mean... The, the thing was, you know, my parents were immigrants. My um, my dad had come here first in 1962. My mum had come in 1964. They were very much of that generation of 
coming here to work hard, do good, try and try and make their children's generation more successful and stable than theirs was. My dad was very, very poor. Um, he'd come from a, he was orphaned when he was a kid. He was a refugee um, in the war and had, had a very, very tough childhood. But he had, you know, he had done really well. He'd got to medical school and become a doctor himself and then come to this country having just got married. So he, he'd made a quantum leap from where he'd come from. Um, but, you know, he, he didn't have any of that sort of security that a middle-class doctor might normally have. You know, he, he, I think, you know, he had a real sort of fear of um, not having financial security because that's what he'd come from. You know, he'd been hungry as a child. And so he sort of instilled that in us, you know, that you've really got to work hard, you've got to have a stable job, you know, you can't take anything for granted, you've got to, um, you know, you've got to do something sort of, you know, sensible and, and, and secure. And, and that means professional. And, you know, we didn't, you know, we, we had no background in business in our family or anything like that. So the idea of doing anything remotely risky was never even countenanced. Um, and having said that, you know, he sort of, he, he really encouraged us to get involved in drama and politics and music and all those sorts of things. But both my parents did for fun, but not for yeah, you know, not not for anything professional. And so, you cross so the line, Krishnan. No, that the fun stops and the work starts. Yeah, exactly. And so, so that was my sort of mindset. So the idea of kind of switching from that to, you know, what, just take everything in your hands, go for it, and see what happens. That was a big moment when I was eighteen, and I, I guess subconsciously because it worked then, I've done that a couple of times with my career I've taken sort of risks um well I mean you, you talk about risks I, I don't know whether they are or not but I mean I've taken big decisions so I started very unusually as a presenter uh, in youth television and children's television um didn't have to work my way up but you know sort of did it for um you know three or four years and then decided that I wanted to get into serious news wasn't really being taken seriously by grown up news and current affairs so I applied for a relatively junior job on Newsnight as an assistant producer which was less than half my pay um, massive step back suddenly kind of being the bag carrier for presenters rather than the presenter themselves they couldn't you know they couldn't really understand why I was doing it because I was quite well known I was you know Newsround mm. in those days used to get quite a big audience and um, but you know I kind of felt I had to take you know, a big step back in order to take a step forward. And because that's what I really wanted to do. And, I, you know, by that stage, I decided that I really wanted to be a political interviewer. I wanted to cover wars and big foreign affairs. And I could do that in Newsround up to a point, but I knew that I didn't want to outstay my welcome as a children's TV presenter and I needed to grow up <laughs> and, um, and, and, and do it on, on grown-up telly. And so, you know, I needed to take that risk and, and, and do that. And, um, and how old were you at that point? Because you were still in your very early 20s, weren't you? I was 24 when I so left Newsround. Big decisions and big career planning for a 24-year-old. Yeah, I, and, you know, I... I you know, t TV always felt precarious. Um, you know, you're on short-term contracts or annual yeah. contracts. You know, you could be dumped at any time. You know, the, the road was strewn with 
the bodies of sort of you know yes. very famous people who suddenly aren't on TV anymore and, because a focus um, group has come back saying we don't like them and therefore yeah. you are cancelled yes I and my, my parents would constantly say why are you involved in this terrible industry you know you've got the A-levels to go to medical school you know just go back and do a proper job you know if I would come back and say I'd had a bad day or you know something had gone wrong or you know the boss had been you know difficult or, or whatever it might be so it, it was it always felt kind of precarious but I kind of thought well if you want to do this properly then you've probably got to go back and do that some of the stuff that you didn't do along the way to becoming a presenter mm. and learn a little bit more about production and and the basics of journalism and um so that's what that's that's why I decided to do that and it worked out you know I went to them saying I'll come as an assistant producer but I want to report and um and be a on-screen journalist before too long and and, and that happened um pretty quickly Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I wanted to delve into family traits shared from one generation to the next and the similarities that I have come across during the research that I've been doing for this interview uh, that you shared between yourself, your dad and your son, actually. Um, your father, as we've touched upon, I mean, an incredibly impressive man. He's just turned 90 and is still working as a cardio- uh, consultant radiologist for the NHS. You put a brilliant post up recently. There was an amazing, I don't know if you saw it, um, a comment <laughs> where you said, here's my dad, 90 years old, still working full time. Somebody put bloody refugees coming over here, <laughs> saving our lives, paying their taxes, still working in their 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a remarkable reaction to that. I mean, I've, I've, I've very occasionally talked about the family but I think that was the big change that came with Strictly actually that I kind of I, I opened up and started talking about stuff that I've never really talked about before um, and the kids having you know grown up now and, and being old enough to kind of decide for themselves whether they were happy with me you know talking yeah. a little bit about them and putting them in the public eye um, 
But your son has actually put himself first in in so many ways. Because Jay, so you've got your dad who's got this remarkable story where, as you say, you know, as a child, he didn't even have shoes until he went to medical school and they were hand-me-downs. He was orphaned, he went hungry. I mean, by the time he arrived here in the UK, he'd he'd had the most difficult of, of lives. So his work ethic is voracious. And you describe his ascent as a quantum leap. And yet, you've pretty much done very, very much the same, Krishna. And you think, you know, you started at Oxford with a job that you were already doing two days a week, so juggling your studies. In your third year, you covered the Pakistani general election, interviewing Benazir Bhutto. Uh, and the Easter before your finals, you went over to cover the Yugoslav war. Yeah. <laughs> right? You left with a job at Newsround and then took a step back, but really forward into Newsnight then became a launch presenter for BBC News 24 before leaving to take up the job you hold now at Channel 4 News as a 28-year-old. And then I fast forward to your son, who is now carving his own path with his band Askew, who became this year the youngest band ever to play Glastonbury. I mean, the gene pool is really quite fascinating, isn't it? I suppose, you know, inevitably all all of that gets passed down. I mean... um... You know, as I say, my, my whole approach to my future was very much, you can't waste your opportunities. You know, I, I knew where my dad had come from, how hard he had worked, how hard, you know, what my mum had given up. My mum was at medical school when she got married and she'd kind of given it up to raise the family. And so she had never forged her own career because she gave everything up for her kids. Um, so I knew how much they had sacrificed and I knew that I couldn't therefore blow it. Um, and, and I had to make the most of my opportunity and also and and I you know I I didn't think I could ever make quite the leap that my dad had made from where he had come from um to where he'd ended up I mean you know my my dad as a child literally spent a month and a half walking um from Burma to India when the Japanese invaded Burma um to safety you know walking for their lives and um just with whatever they could carry and the, the clothes on their back, and they, you know, and what died along to his the way. And, well, his, his parents were alive at that stage. They were all living. The family were living in Burma. Um, as lots of South Indians had gone to Burma in Victorian times to work on the railways and, you know, empire building things. And his family had done that in the in the in the mid nineteenth century. And so he was born in Burma, but in in a South Indian community. When the Japanese invaded Burma, the Indians were basically told to get out. And so they, they, they fled and they missed the last... There were, there were ships and different ways of getting out, but they, they were a pretty poor family and they, they missed the last ship. And so they had to join a convoy of about 5,000 people who made the journey on foot. And um, they, they walked for a lot of it. They got lifts for some of it. They took riverboats for some of it. But it was a horrendous journey, um, which I never really got much of the detail on as a child, partly because my dad had blocked it out, but also because I'd never really asked. And it was during the Bosnian War. We were watching television one day, and it was one of those days where NATO had accidentally bombed a convoy of refugees. And um, some people had been killed. And I remember asking... Well, in fact, my... My then girlfriend asked my dad, was it anything like this for you when you made your journey? And, and he said, well, actually, yes, it was, you know, and, and, he, and then out sort of poured various stories of, of what happened along their way. So 
I mean, that's a sort of a, a slight diversion to the point that I knew that I kind of needed to sort of not, not throw away his hard work. Yeah. And I, I, I think I, I, I sort of, I felt, I felt guilty um, in a way, passing that on to my own kids. I sort of banged on about it quite a lot with them when they were younger, to the point where, you know, sometimes they would turn around and go, yeah, okay, fine. You know, that, that's amazing that he did that. And, you know, you've done very well, but like, don't lay that on us. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I get that, you know, because it's sort of, um, you know, it, you, you, I think you can sort of put too much uh, pressure on, on kids. Um, but I think inevitably, you know, you know, they will see that hard work does pay off, you know, hard work and opportunities and a bit of luck and a bit of people helping you along the way and all of those sorts of things um, do pay off. And so, so yeah, I mean, Jay and Jasmine, my daughter, actually, who, um, who's a student at Bristol and, and, but also a brilliant singer, you know, they, they both, you know, they both work very, very hard for what they want and what they're good at. And, and Jay is in this band with, um, a, you know, a, a, a really good friend who he's known since he was a baby. Actually, it's the son of an old colleague of mine from Channel 4 News. Um, and they, yeah, they, they, went to, they went to Glastonbury <laughs> and played at the rabbit hole. And, um, and they, they work really, really hard at what they're doing and they practice every week. And they have done since they were little kids. And I don't know, you know, where, where, where they will end up, but, you know, they, um, they really enjoy it and they work hard at it and they have a good time. So um, Jay's now sort of at that stage where if you ask him whether he'd like to do that, he, he'll sort of, he's very realistic. He'll say, well, you know, you can't ever, you can't ever predict who's going to make it in the music industry, but, but maybe I could be a session musician. And I kind of, you know, I kind of like the way he's thinking, you know, because he's, he's only 16 and... Um, yeah, you know, he's, he's 16 he's, and he's, he's really already good. played Glastonbury. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, he's very much his father's son, as are you. <laughs> and I love, I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about not wanting to put too much pressure on your own children. But what your father has passed down and what you're passing down to your kids is like, you know, one life, one opportunity. The joy of doing something that you love every day um, and it not feeling necessarily like work is probably the greatest gift I think you can ever bestow upon yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think although we were brought up with, you know, work hard in your exams, get good A-levels, go to a good university, all of that, you know, what we got along the way was also go for it, you know, also enjoy yourself, mm. you know, be as good as you possibly can at, you know, at, at music or whatever it is that turns you on. And, and I've... I suppose I've kind of taken that slightly to the next level with my kids because, because, because of my job, you know, I, I meet so many successful people and, uh, and, you know, successful in all sorts of different ways. And I also know that there are no real rules about who makes it and who doesn't. Really so, so it's all about believing you can do it and, mm. and going for it and just having a go because somebody's got to be a pop star. Somebody's got to be, you know, a famous actor. Somebody's got to invent something or be a great scientist so it may as well be you and so my, my whole approach to the kids has always been yeah you know what if you if, if you if you think you want to be a rock star then go, go and try and be a rock star that's fine you know? <laughs> um and because someone's got to be and uh, you know and if if not then fine do something else you know they're, they're they're clever kids and as long as they also you know pursue things that stretch their minds and 
you know, and, and, and do kind of work hard in that respect as well, then I don't mind what they do. You know, everything you say to your children is what my dad used to say to me and my mum. And, oh, God, the number of times I fell back on that, it was really important to know that they give, gave me permission to go and just try. Somebody's got it. Yeah. I, I remember on a parents' evening at school, my dad was telling me about this this weekend, actually. Um, the teacher had said, we don't think Kate should do A-level. She's not bright enough. And my dad was furious. <laughs> he said, how dare you? She was probably right, right? My grades probably weren't great. Uh, she was only working with what I'd given her. And he just, don't you, I mean, like, he was livid. Yeah. And, of course, I did go on to do A-levels. And I did go on to study journalism. And, you know, their advice was she'll never be a journalist, but she could be a typist. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was absolutely incandescent. And I remember him kind of tub-thumping in front of her saying, if she wants to be the next prime minister... Someone's got to be. Why can't she? I mean, I don't. But if she wants to be an astronaut, someone's got to walk that moon. Why not her? And yeah. that was so powerful to me. So it's really, those are, those are I, pearls I, of wisdom that you're pouring I in there. I kind of think we, you know, we, we channel kids so early on, far too, too soon. Um, and I think all the, our whole, the way we gear, gear life at the moment is, is just too quick. You know, I, 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 I've seen that with my own kids and their friends that you know, making them specialise, making them decide on subjects and what mm. they want to study and what they want to be and what university they want to go to and all that kind of... It's, it's way, way too quick and life is long <laughs> and getting longer. So why do we... You know, why are we still sticking to these ages that were set, you know, decades and decades ago when life expectancy was 10 or 20 years? Um, you know, but also, where, where our working lives stopped in our 60s. That's what I mean, They yes. no longer do, you know. Yeah, um, and exactly. And, you know, I, I think... I, I certainly don't imagine um, stopping work at sort of what used to be, you know, normal retirement age. So I don't know why we have to decide what we're going to do and what we're going to be at 18. Now, of course, I happened to do that. Um, mm. But yeah, that was, think, that's yeah. just a fluke. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think from, for most of us, you know, we should be spending a lot more time just kind of learning stuff, trying stuff out, not specialising and you know, and, and then working out what we want mm. to do. And, what, and not being afraid to change and say, actually, yeah. I'm going to do something else now. Yeah, And, exactly. you know, across, you know, well, we'll all be at work, what, 50 plus years now. Not, not everybody wants to do the same thing for 50 years. It's like having the same sandwich for lunch every day. Yeah. 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 And as you know, you know, you've just pulled on your Lycra and discovered a whole new <laughs> side of you. Well, the, I, th I think that, that is largely about confidence as well and, and I think that was the big um, thing I learned in that whole process that initially I went in thinking a this was just going to be a bit of fun but b I was rubbish and that I would not be the joke but I would just be kind of like the one who could just about stagger through I think my aims were very very low I just kind of thought I, I, I don't want to be the joke candidate but I, you know but I know my limitations and I know I'm no good compared to anyone else here. And actually, after a couple of weeks going, you know what, you, you, there's no reason why you can't do this. And, you know, I, I think that is a, a totally transferable belief and skill, you know, that for most of us, uh, it is just a question of concentration, application, practice and believing you can do it. And uh, and if you do that, then you can you can become good enough. You know, you might not be the best, but you can be good enough to 
A, enjoy yourself and B, perhaps be reasonably successful at something. Yeah. Well, listen, you're playing the O2. It's already sold out. <laughs> Just look at you go. Yeah. Which takes me beautifully to my third and final question for you, Krishna. Clearly, you've loved your time on Strictly. And you have, in so many ways, found pleasure in the most unlikely of places, the ballroom. So I wondered where else in life you've stumbled upon pleasures that you'd never have anticipated, be it music, fitness, I mean, a blind date in which you met your wife. You, you tell me. Uh, where have I stumbled upon things? I mean, that's, that's a difficult question. I mean... I mean, it's, tr- it's true that I met my wife on a blind date and, um, and that's the last place in the world. It's the only blind date I've ever been on. Um, and I don't think anybody goes on I've a blind date done. thinking this is going to be it. You kind of almost go with the sense of, well, I always have. I haven't been on many and they have always ended up being long-term relationships, by the way, uh, where you go, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm doing it under duress almost. Yes. Was, how was that? How was it for you with Lisa? Well, that, funnily enough, I mean, I'd never really thought about it, but it, I was also placing my trust in somebody else. It was a friend of mine who I just had lunch with, and uh, and he said, "Oh, you should meet um, Lisa. She's godmother to my daughter." And um, we, we so we, I, I sort of pretended to be terribly blasé about these things. Said, "Yeah, you know, sort it out." And <laughs> he pretended to be very, you know, that this was totally normal, uh, as if he'd done it lots of times before. Um, and then on the day, he rang me at about six because we were going out for dinner on a sort of a double date. And, and he rang me and said, well, I've never done this before. How do you think this works? I said, well, I've never done it before. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, so he was like, like, do you want me to leave at sort of 10 o'clock or something? Or, you know, leave you to or whatever. I said, I've really no idea. Let's just see what happens. Um, and, and it was very nice. And, you know... A year and a half later, we got married. God, that's quick, <laughs> so, isn't it? Um, so yeah, I mean, we uh, was it even a year and a half? I'm trying to think. It was yeah, it was May 2003 that we met, and we got married in February 2005. Um, so just over a year and a half. So yeah, I mean, that that was certainly unexpected. Um, I don't know. I I I think probably. I mean, <laughs> it's probably a a bit of a con for me to present myself as somebody who, um, you know, is the, is the big risk taker and um, and does lots of things that are unexpected because I think most of my life is very thought through and planned and hardworking and, and all the rest of it. But you just have these little moments, mm. whether it's Strictly or meeting your wife or, you know, going to something that you love. Um, and, and so I, I would struggle to sort of say, oh, there's this other thing that I did. I mean, I've done, I, you know, I'm a little bit faddish, so I've, I've done little things like trying to get fit or um, taking up cycling for this charity that I'm very involved yes. in, with, um, w- which are sort of revelations in a way because you can do something. I mean, I suppose, I suppose the bike ride is sort of the big, <laughs> the big one where, again, I did something where... I never imagined it. I, I now ride from London to Paris in 24 hours once a year to raise money for the charity that I'm chairman of, which is called Duchenne UK. And I've never been fit. I've never done any exercise. I've never, um, I've never enjoyed doing any exercise. And this friend of mine, Emily Rubin, who works with me on Channel 4 News, um, had a 
had a little boy at the same time as our little boy was born. Um, and when he was three or four, he was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a very difficult disease which involves uh, muscle wasting and is degenerative and for which there's currently no cure. And so Emily decided that her only option was to start a charity to try and fund medical research because there was no charity dedicated to that. There were mm. different charities involved with muscular dystrophy, but, but nothing very focused on this particular type of rare disease. And so and I decided to sort of help in whatever way I could. And I thought, well, I'll try and raise some money some way. And I didn't know what to do because I say I'm not a runner or anything like that. And so I couldn't do a marathon or anything like that. And a colleague of mine who was a cyclist said, you could cycle from London to Paris in 24 hours. People would pay you to do that. And I was like, but that's totally preposterous. How could I ever do that? And he said, yes, you could if you just trained. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I walked into a bike shop and said, I haven't ridden a bike since I was 15. Um, <laughs> but I've decided to cycle from London to Paris in 24 hours to raise money for this charity. Um, could you help me? And they sold me a bike and they helped me. And they actually got so involved in helping me that they now support the bike ride every year. Um, and 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 so and you kind of make friends this way so but but the biggest thing about that was just kind of learning that if you if you if you say something preposterous like i'm going to be so fit that i can cycle for 16 hours um and ride 300 kilometers in one go you can do it and and i did you know and it took me months and months of of hard work and training and going round and round richmond park but i did it and I've done it a few times since. So and this this young boy that was born at the same time as, as your son Jay is also in Jay's band. Eli is the Eli is the singer, yeah. um, the singer songwriter in the band. And yeah, I mean, uh, he's a remarkable kid and very talented. And again, I think that's a really interesting story of talent, actually, where mm. you you find your thing, and. I think you often you often find this in people with disabilities because I think you know it's 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 so much more obvious you know that there are some things they can't do and there are, and so you've got to find the thing that you can do mm. and so Eli who is now in a wheelchair has discovered that the thing he can do is he can he can sing and he can write music and that's the thing that you know he, he will be able to do for a long time and so and he's really good at it so and he's got a huge stage presence and that's very very surprising I think for a lot of people watching the band to see a lead singer in a wheelchair yeah. who's got a huge ability to command a stage and to be a big presence and a big personality and is is probably you know is is, is the biggest personality in the band you know you've got these big sort of you know, big sort of muscle, muscle, uh, muscly sort of five foot ten, six foot boys sort of strutting around the stage with guitars. But the one who's got the real presence is the small one in a wheelchair. And that's really, really interesting, I think, for audiences. Um, so their story is quite remarkable because they, he, he'd put it out there that having gained a buzz on the circuit that, you know, the big ambition for the band was to play Glastonbury because Eli is... is in, that was his big ambition. And, yeah. and what is his prognosis? And it's, Well, it's I mean, you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a degenerative disease. Mm. And um, 
So he wanted to play it while he was fit and able enough to do that. Yeah, you know, but boys, they, 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 they it, 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 is an, it is a disease that mostly affects boys because of the genetics around it. And they tend, when they're diagnosed, to sort of walk a little bit differently and then they lose the ability to walk and, um, and you know, everything degenerates. And it's, it's a very, very cruel disease. Um, and, you know, there are some treatments that are arresting its, 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 its progress now, but that's what the charity is sort of working on a lot. So it's hard to say precise prognosis, but, you know, it is currently an, 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 an incurable disease. Mm. And so Eli is sort of really grasping his opportunity and his moment. And, yeah, he, 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 he put it out there. Just uh, He was asked, I think, what his ambition was, and he sort of... He said, oh, our ambition is to play Glastonbury. And Emily Evis heard about it and asked to see a video of the band playing and, and then said, yeah, okay, book them. They can come and play. And so, so they, they played a, a little small vel- venue in, in Glastonbury called the Rabbit Hole, which is also one of the coolest places in Glastonbury. I was going to say, it's, not, ju- not, it's, like, it's yeah. not about the size. <laughs> it's about the fact that it's the rabbit hole. It is a famous venue. It yeah. is the home of great sounds. And you and Lisa both trotted down there this year to watch your son on stage at Glastonbury. That in yeah. itself, again, that's his quantum leap, right? No, it was an incredible experience. And um, in fact, they're, 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 they're talking... <laughs> I'm not sure I'm allowed to say, but they're, they're talking to a big festival in America at the moment who, wow. um, who were talking about flying them out next summer. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, they might, have a, they might have a sort of a similar experience um, in a few well, months' I, time. In I the, wish in the them States. nothing but luck. That's remarkable. And lovely for you to be able to stand there with your wife and watch him do his thing, knowing how important it is to find your thing because you found yours. Yeah, well, I mean, and also it's kind of, my, my only tip there on, on, it's a bad parenting tip, this, but it worked strangely for me with Jay and the guitar, which was, um, Jay, you know, I, I, I filled my house with musical instruments when the kids were little, just hoping they would pick stuff up. And, they, you know, and they both did. They, they're both sort of self-taught. Um, but they weren't, Jay wasn't that good. He, he played guitar for years and years in the band as a little kid, you know, from about, I don't know, about the age of 11. Um, and he was almost on the verge of giving up. And then I, but I, I kind of knew he was okay at it and he could do well. And so two Christmases ago, I thought, well, I'm just going to have a last ditch attempt at inspiring him. So I bought him a really nice guitar for Christmas. Um, and it was an, it's an American Fender. And I thought, well, if he doesn't like it, it'll go in my collection and I'll have it. And, um, and it totally worked. Literally since that day on Christmas Day, he played that guitar for a minimum of an hour to an hour and a half a day, um, wow. sometimes two hours. And I, don't, I honestly don't think a day has gone by where he hasn't. And, uh, and if you do that for a year, you become really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and he's, he's now done that for almost two years. And he's a brilliant guitarist. He's miles better than me. And uh, I, I, I think I told this story and I said, oh, I, I tried to inspire him. And he said, I, he said, I wasn't inspired, but I knew that I didn't deserve a guitar that good. And so I needed to work hard enough to be good enough to deserve that guitar. So I think that that's maybe where some of that ethos, yeah. you know, that my, well, there, I got it? from my dad. You can kind of <laughs> see that it was kind of there when it came to the guitar and Jay. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's very powerful. I loved reading um, about the three of you and and the shared attitude that you have. I mean, your your passions are all very different, but your work ethic is very much the same. Yeah. Wonderful. I've loved talking to you, Krishnan, and I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast. Um, before I let you go, could you just tell me what have been your favourite episodes of your podcast, the ones where people have brought something to the table that have really fed your brain and made you go, yeah, actually, that could change the world? Um, gosh, that's a good question. Um, just so I know which really episodes bad. to listen to next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... You know, it's funny what, what, what gains traction. We were talking about this yesterday, actually, the team, because on that podcast, um, you know, the ones that get the most listens will be either the most famous, the big names, mm. you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Ice-T or whoever it might be. Ice-T was a fascinating um, one, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or sort of uh, economists and people like that, you know, who, who have got something sort of quite complex to, to, to talk about. And it's often the ones that slightly fall by the wayside that I've found really, really interesting. Um, so um, there's a woman called Suzanne Simard, who's a, um, a, a botanist and a climate change expert in Canada, who is the woman who basically discovered that trees communicate with each other. Um, wow. Now... Now, now that's, that's one legacy. of our least listened to episodes on ways to change the world. But she, I, I thought it was absolutely gripping and, and absolutely amazing the way she explained how she grew up in, in Canada, in the woods, and she learned about forestry. And then she started studying how trees wow. would grow. And, and, and she's basically sort of worked out how, um, how roots, um, how trees share nutrients through their root networks and how... Um, they can they can help each other and communicate in that way. And um, I mean, it's not communication in the way we understand it, but it's it's a form of communication. So 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 episodes like that, I think, are sort of absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And um, there are all sorts of people. Um, Yuval Noah Harari, yeah, um, who is a brilliant thinker. Um, who else would I say? Uh, just going back to the journal list now. Um, You've got, yeah, Yuval Noah Harari. That's about the origins of racism. And yes. it's a really fascinating listen. And there are really surprising ones. Like, I mean, you, I'm, you've probably interviewed Gary Newman. I, 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 I yeah. found him absolutely gripping. I was, and I was so fascinated by him, obviously, because I was a kid in the 80s and 90s and loved his music. And, but actually, he was so interesting talking about Asperger's and how his life is affected by it and how he lives with it and, um, and what it gives him. Um, so I think those sorts of conversations are, are yeah. you know, are, are what I love, you know, the, the sort of the surprising thing that you didn't know about somebody. Um, yeah, I guess you've got, you had Camille on as well and I love Camille. Camille is um, a woman that I got to know a couple of years back and I loved her. She was a young woman who was working in the city and just kept thinking, I, you know, I, I just love songwriting. I just, I'm going to give it a go. So she left a very well-paid job in the city. And she was very unusual in terms of the fact that she was a high achiever. She was a young black woman in the city. Yeah. And then she started writing songs and became one of the UK's most prolifically successful songwriters. And she's just nailing it. And her story is fascinating. She's on there as well. 
I mean, there are loads. I'm, I'm just looking through the list. So so I can, you, to pick a them bit up. like me, you've got your dream ticket, right? This show is my dream ticket. I wanted to create a space where I could converse over a glass of wine with people I find endlessly interesting. And it sounds to me like you've just done the same. We just called them different things. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, th- I think it's sort of, it's finding the thing that um, isn't isn't obvious about people, you know, yeah. that that is that is a real joy and you know when you talk to talk to somebody like Rick Rubin the music producer um you can talk to him you know endlessly about the music he has produced but you can also talk to him about you know his his philosophy and he's really really interesting um you know and his sort of whole take on 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 happiness and success and all all of those sorts of big ideas as well which I think are great you know they sort of they are they are sort of condensed conversations i think that that's the the joy of it isn't it you sort of like you hopefully get in an hour what it normally might take a whole friendship <laughs> to, yeah. to to work out well i, I was i hope that you know if it, i want to leave the listeners feeling like they've met somebody at the end of a week-long holiday you know like you, you've hung yeah. out for a week and you've got to know yeah you've got to know somebody a little bit better than and and also just challenge some preconceptions and um, yeah, allow people to look in a little. It's been fascinating talking to you. I'm a huge admirer of your work and um, thank you for giving me your time today. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been a pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> 